2,996 names on that wall. Can't even read them, they're so small. 2,996 families represented by those names. And the reverberation through communities that every single one of those families belong to. 2,996 memories lost. Which is a big deal. And I don't know where you were 20 years ago. But there are certain things in the corporate consciousness that we all kind of remember the same. For my parents, the question was, where were you when JFK was shot? For my generation, it's this question. Where were you? We had had our daughter just a few weeks before, August 23, 2001, and I had just started a job at Loma Linda Academy as their chaplain. So I remember where I was. I was getting ready for school. I was in the shower. And my wife said, you've got to get out here. You've got to get out here. And when you're a new parent and your wife says, you've got to get out here, you think the worst. So wrapped a towel around me, jumped out. And of course, the worst was worse than I could have imagined. Because while it wasn't happening to my child, it was happening to people's children. And I remember standing there dripping wet and watching that second plane hit the South Tower. Shocking. That's what I remember from that day. The rest seems kind of like a blur. And, and I had been through national tragedy before. I remember being in seventh grade and watching the Challenger explode. We were sitting in science class watching it go up. And when the Challenger exploded, the space shuttle, we, you know, I was 13. I don't think I understood the impact of that, but this was a whole different scale. And so now we're asked 20 years later, to remember. This whole series is called Remember. We're going to be remembering joy, remembering where we came from. But today, we're going to remember tragedy and sorrow because it's appropriate. And we have to understand that memory is an interesting thing. Because if you grew up in a home with siblings, you know that you don't always remember things exactly the same way. There's certain items that you think happened one way, and then, you know, your brother or sister will say, no, 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 it happened this way. And you realize, oh, our perspectives are so different on the same thing. But there's certain things in life that when they happen, we all have a collective memory. So, again, we're asked to remember. But, but remember is a loaded word. Because to remember is to relive something. It's sometimes to reinterpret something. 
It's to remind us and to reestablish meaning in what it is that we're actually remembering. And today, we're asked to remember. To remember the unthinkable. To remember and honor and memorialize. But being people of faith with authoritative scriptures, we need to go to get a baseline of what remembering means. So it comes from the Hebrew word zakar. And in its different forms, because it comes in quite a few different forms and many variations and different nouns, it means to remember or to memorialize. But we are asked to remember, and this word is used over 240 times at least in the Old and New Testament. And we recognize a few things about remembering. First of all, we, we, we recognize the importance of personal memory. Memory is an essential part of being human, which we often take for granted. We remember our names. That's easy. We remember our addresses. That's not too bad. We used to remember phone numbers until we got phones that remembered our phone numbers with us. So now we just have to remember where our phones are. We all have fond memories of our childhoods. And we call and love the stories that we were told by our parents and our grandparents about their growing up, their memories. But have you ever imagined what it would be like to not have that personal memory anymore? If we just couldn't remember? What would it feel like if our memories just didn't exist? They didn't function. There's a Spanish filmmaker who in his older age talked about the importance of personal memory. And he says, you have to begin to lose your memory, if only in bits and pieces, to realize that memory is what makes our lives. Life without memory is not life at all. Our memory is our coherence, our reason, our feeling, even our action. Without it, we are nothing. This is quoted by Oliver Sacks. In his writing, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. So this kind of personal memory is important. This is why we have to protect our minds and our memories. And if I can give you a suggestion on a book to read about dementia, I would say read The Alzheimer's Solution by Dr. Dean Shirzai and his wife because it gives really phenomenal input in how we can maintain our cognitive use later on in life. But when we talk about memory, we're not just talking about the importance of personal memory because we're also talking about the importance of collective historical memory for a people because that's kind of what we're being asked to do today is together remember. And I can't think of a group of people who collectively have remembered more systemically than the Jewish people. And how did they remember? because they were the ones who were being asked to remember all throughout the Old Testament. So the first and probably most glaring 
model of remembering is this idea of Passover. Remembering the rescue from Egypt. In fact, they remember these things so importantly and remember themselves within these stories that even things like in death, they will bury you with your feet towards Jerusalem so that when you are resurrected and you stand up, you're just walking towards Jerusalem. If you've ever been to the Mount of Olives, outside the old city of Jerusalem, you realize every grave is facing the same exact way. And during the diaspora, the dispersion, when Jews were all throughout the world after the destruction of the second temple, which we'll talk about a little bit later, we realize that even when they were buried, they were buried with a little sack from Jerusalem. And what we recognize from all this is that remembering gives us an identity. And, and I got to tell you, that identity can be forged as for something or against something. How we remember, and you're going to hear me say this a few times, how we remember is almost as important as what we are remembering. And I mentioned it before, but Scripture just has a ton of remembering. It is all over Scripture. We are compelled. God is compelled. Israel is compelled to remember. So let's take a look at how God remembers. And we recognize that on at least 10 occasions, God is said to remember his covenantal relationship or these promises that he made with Israel. This comes from Leviticus, and we see it all over the book of Psalms. He also remembers his covenant with Noah, specifically in Genesis 9. God also remembers the actual occasion of making his covenant in Exodus and Deuteronomy and 2 Chronicles. In Leviticus it says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Abraham. The call for God to remember his unique relation to Israel does not mean that God always remembers to bless, for his justice is mixed in with that as well. The only thing that God does not remember is your sin, which he willfully forgets. Psalm 105.8. He remembers his covenants forever, the promises he made for a thousand generations. So God is called to remember in Scripture, but also Israel remembered. The book of Deuteronomy is rich in its call to remember the words and deeds of God. Deuteronomy 5.15, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. This is why the Lord your God commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day, to remember the exodus or deliverance from Egypt is always central to their thoughts because it gave them such uh, an incredible identity. And it also spoke to the incredible power of God. Even in Isaiah, in a lament, we see them remembering what God has done. When it says, then they remembered those days of old, when Moses led the people out of Egypt, they cried out, where is the one who brought Israel through the sea with Moses as their shepherd? Where is the one who sent his Holy Spirit to be among his people? Where is the one whose power was displayed when Moses lifted up his hand? The one who divides the sea before them, making himself famous forever. 
Where is the one who led them through the bottom of the sea? They were like fine stallions racing through the desert, never stumbling. As with cattle going down into a peaceful valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. You led your people, Lord, and gained a magnificent reputation. This isn't a lament. They still remembered how we remember has a lot is really important, even sometimes as important as what we remember. So, but we should probably ask the question, right, because we're, we're remembering something that's difficult today. Do they remember the bad things happened or did they just remember the good things? So I'm going to fast forward from the Old Testament into even beyond the New Testament because we're going to deal with the destruction of the second temple in 70 A.D., the ruler Domitian destroys Jerusalem and destroys the second temple. This is where we have the diaspora, the dispersion of Jews all throughout the world. And we see in the writings of the rabbi in the Mishnah, we see that they dealt with this tragedy in a lot of different ways and remembered this tragedy in ways that were both beneficial and not so beneficial because some rabbis reacted simply by depression. Not being able to see hope when their temple was destroyed. For their hope was in the temple, not in the God that they worshiped there. Some simply lamented and gave up, walked around with covered heads, it says, or allowed men of violence to rule. They saw no hope. Some reacted more practically and responsibly. They shifted from priestly duties to teaching duties. Things changed after that tragedy. And some created memorials in time. They found ways to remember they found rituals that gave meaning and purpose, hooks to hang their collective hats on. So you know that God remembers, and we see that Israel remembers, but we also recognize that we are called to remember as well. Deuteronomy 8.2, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for those 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. By the way, their time in the wilderness was not great, but God led them through it, and they learned. Are we to remember tragedy? Absolutely. But the question we have to ask ourselves as people of faith is, what is God teaching us? What are we learning from it? What do we learn by remembering? Thinking back on the tragedy that is 9-11, what have we learned as a group of Christians because there certainly was this idea of national unity right afterwards, but I think we can safely say today that didn't necessarily last. Maybe it's because we remembered wrong. But there are certain things that we did learn. I'm not saying these are necessarily good. One of the things we learned is that we experienced tragedy. Experienced tragedy is more present. So when we experience tragedy, it becomes very real. Other people experience tragedy. It doesn't seem as real to us. But when we felt it on our soil, it became more clear and present for us. It became real for us. Now, as people of faith, what this should do, it seems to me, is help us recognize how incredibly painful this kind of tragedy and sorrow is. See, the problem is it can become dangerous if when we remember, we only focus on those who made it happen or the reason that it happened, 
or thinking that it only pain and tragedy only happens to us. See, we follow the words of the founders of Christianity coming directly from Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one part suffers, all parts suffers with it. And one part is honored, all parts are glad. Hopefully, our remembering of this particular tragedy will remind us all that all the other suffering that happens in the world is just as painful to someone. It should make us more compassionate, not less. More caring, not less. And more present in the suffering of others. But I get it, it's hard. Because one of the other things that we learned is that losing a sense of safety changes how we live. In 2001, I was playing a lot of music, and we had a gig just about a week after 9-11 happened. As you know, they shut down the airports for a while. So going back, I went to Ontario, and the place was deserted. It was shocking. And just that's eerie enough. Went through TSA. That wasn't too overwhelming, but we flew to Tyler, Texas. If you've ever been to Tyler, Texas, you know it's not a big town. And you know the airport in Tyler, Texas almost doesn't exist. It's so small. So we were there, we stayed there for a few days, played the shows that we needed to play. This is when I realized things had significantly changed. We get to the Tyler, Texas airport, which is essentially a room and a runway, and there were three TSA agents there, all of which were probably on their fourth or fifth career. These were not young people. Three women who were now gonna take their job more seriously than they ever had before which was absolutely appropriate. There were five of us on the plane, the five of us in the band. It may have taken an hour and a half to get through TSA. They looked through everything. It was everything but a strip shirt search, which seems almost ridiculous, but that's how we felt. Our safety was gone, and so we changed the way that we live. And I think it's easy to live in fear. And I get why we do. And I remember having that fear after 9-11. But I think that we also have to recognize something because because where we go as people of faith for safety is not where everyone else goes. 2 Timothy 4.18 Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. So where does our safety come from? It's not in the same ways that other people think safety comes from because we're living a different kind of life and we value different kinds of things. Our safety comes in our ability to bind ourselves to the message of the cross and then bind ourselves to one another in the shadow of that cross. That's where our safety comes from. How we remember is as important as what we remember at times. Thinking back on 9-11, we can choose to focus on many different memories. The planes, because they're so visually overwhelming. The first responders, because when everyone was running away, they were running too, at great personal and community loss. We can choose to think about those responsible and grow in anger and vitriol towards that. We can think about the mistakes that were made all throughout our country because, of course, there were mistakes made. We hadn't experienced something like this before. The question becomes, what do you choose to remember 
And what does that do to you? Going back to our Jewish brothers and sisters, they have to choose to remember some pretty significant tragedy. And the way that they've chosen to remember is at times incredibly powerful. Every time I'm in Israel, I go to Yad Vashem, which is a museum, but what it really is is a Holocaust remembrance memorial, and I love those words. And it's difficult because it's, you can't just walk in and go wherever you want. There's a way that you walk through it. And so you begin, and you begin in early 1930s Germany and begin to see um, what was happening at the time, the context and the culture, the things that were happening that led itself, lent itself to be able for a group of people to be able to villainize another group of people so much so that they thought it necessary to eradicate them from the earth. That didn't happen in a day. It wasn't one man's idea. It was a movement that happened to get them there. And so you walk through that and you watch it and you begin to learn. And then you begin to see the tragedy because they don't shy away from the tragedy, from the sorrow, from the pain and the overwhelming evil that was experienced during that time. And right in the darkest moments as you're looking at pictures from Auschwitz or you're looking at just the worst, there'll be a little picture and a plaque underneath it with a light shining on it telling you about someone who, again, at great personal sacrifice was able to save 30 or 40 Jews or two or 300 because of the movements that they made. You see, the way that they've chosen to remember is to make sure that we're not always in the dark, to make sure that there is light because remembering without hope doesn't get us anywhere. By the time you leave Yad Vashem and it empties out onto a lobby where the whole building opens up to see the expanse of Jerusalem, and it's stark, it's wood, it's cement. There's no place to sit. They're not trying to cajole, cajole you and make you feel better, but you walk out and you realize life continues and it can be better. Life continues and it can be light. And that light can shine out of the darkness. And if you've ever looked at the skyline of New York on 9-11, you see that tribute in light where that light begins to shine so brightly. And what's fascinating is that it was a temporary installment until they built the brick and mortar to show the, the, the national consciousness and the hope that comes out of some tragedy like this. But it was so powerful that that's what people wanted. 19 huge lights for each tower. Last year, they weren't gonna do it because of COVID. But people weren't having it. And especially in the midst of that darkness, we needed to see a different kind of light. Because if we, remember, if, we, we rem, if we remember without hope, we're no good to the world. 
And we, as Christians, have a hope that transcends tragedy. We have a hope that transcends sorrow. And we understand that in the midst of the deepest tragedy and the deepest sorrow, God was able to change that into everlasting life and hope. Through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, we live a different way. We do not grieve like others who have no hope. This tribute of light, every time I see it, I get emotional because it is so powerful. But I wonder, are we the tributes of light that God has in the world today? Are we that hope that people can see? That people look at and get emotional? Because if only, as we remember, we also hope. And that's what that light does. The refrain that was played before I got up is, it is well. How can you say it is well when it does not seem like it is well? When it does not feel like it is well, when it feels like we're in the midst of it, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of division, in the midst of sorrow, how can it be well? There's only one way. And it's by answering this question. Where do we center our hope? Because here's the thing, as we look back 20 years and we see the tragedy that happened as Christians, our vision doesn't stop 20 years ago. Our vision transcends 20 years ago and goes 2,000 years before, and that's where we gain our hope. It does not stop on America's worst day. It goes beyond that to God's best day and to our best day. And if we allow our vision to stop in something that absolutely does give us a certain type of identity, we have forgotten that we live in an identity that's much greater than what came out of 9-11. We should never be okay with this kind of suffering and this kind of assault. But we should also never think that there is not hope that comes out of everything because we believe in a God who is hope. How is it well? Because God is good. Because of what God did on the cross, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's how it is well. It's not great. We don't enjoy it. We don't minimize pain and suffering but we recognize that we don't grieve like others. And because we don't grieve like others, we can't live like others either. Our lives have to be that tribute of light to the world out of the deepest and darkest tragedy. Let's bow our heads. Lord of grace, it's hard for us to say it is well if we don't have you. It's easy for us to be eaten up by anger and vitriol 
by the need and desire for revenge for something terrible that happened. But Lord, we also know that our identity didn't happen in a day. Our identity was forged in the incarnation, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why we talk about identity so often, that our identity comes from you. And so Lord, as we look back and remember, may that remembering be the catapult, those lights that shine into the sky and remind us that there is a hope far greater than any tragedy we may have experienced. Lord, may we be compassion, may we be grace, may we be love, and may we be hope to the world. So in the end, it's not just us, but others who can say, it is well. Amen.